you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, as well as other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com, and while you're at it, like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you want to contact me, feel free to send me an email at Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. And finally, if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. If you pledge $1 on Patreon, you will get access to a backlog of tons of exclusive pre-show episodes recorded specifically for Patreon supporters spread across all uh, spread across all three of my podcasts. And if you don't feel like supporting me with money or anything, uh, feel free to leave a rating review, rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, it helps out the show a lot and gives me some good feedback that is public that I can brag about or um, <laughs> uh, crawl into a corner in the fetal position and cry about. Um, so uh, today on the show, I'm going to be discussing The Arrival. It's the second episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on September 22nd, 1961. And I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 12, Hour of Nightmare. Um, I don't have any pre-show stuff to go uh, to go into, so let's just go ahead and go into my review of The Arrival. Um, I was very excited about this episode, and just so you guys know, I'm going to be spoiling the episode from the jump, so if you haven't watch the arrival uh pause this go watch it and come back and listen to the review otherwise you've been warned so yeah i'm gonna go ahead and read a plot summary of the arrival courtesy of uh the twilight zone unlocking the door to a television classic by martin grahams jr so here we go plot summary for the arrival a small passenger airplane lands with perfect descent at a commercial airport and brings with it an unsolved mystery. No pilots, crew, or luggage are found on board. Mr. Sheckley of the Federal Aviation Agency arrives to unearth as many facts as he can. In the 20-odd years he's been investigating aviation puzzles, his record is spotless. Sheckley verifies where the plane took off, the flight plan, and the passenger manifest. Shortly after inspecting the airplane personally, he realizes that what they have is a ghost plane. Each person envisions a different plane, because they were told it landed at the airport, but the plane isn't really there. In order to prove his theory, Sheckley orders a mechanic to start the engines, and he places his arm through the spinning propellers. Unharmed, he witnesses the plane vanish before his eyes and the men surrounding him. The solution to the mystery is revealed. Sheckley was unable to solve the mystery of a vanished DC-3 from 17 years before. His failure to solve the case plagued him until today when he encountered what might best be described as a ghost plane that made a successful landing. Okay, so, uh, first of all, I meant to mention this last time, but, uh... In case you can't tell, I don't. I this is a cold read of that plot summary. Um, I should probably read them and maybe rehearse a little bit because I get kind of tongue tied a little bit. But anyway, um, I'll do better going forward. I think. So 
yeah, starring in The Arrival is Harold J. Stone as Grant Sheckley. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in a Serling scripted episode of the show Insight in 1966 titled The Hate Syndrome. I hadn't heard about, I hadn't heard of Insight as a show and I kind of dug a little bit into it and it, apparently Insight was, um, an American Roman Catholic religious themed anthology shedding light on the contemporary search for meaning, freedom, and love. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. And the plot summary for The Hate Syndrome is a police detective must sort out a situation involving an elderly Hebrew teacher and, and, and an anti-Semitic man. Now, this episode of Insight is actually available in its entirety on YouTube, courtesy of the UCLA Film TV Archive. Um, I will put a link to that YouTube video in the show notes. Um, I haven't watched it myself, but... Um, it sounds interesting and I'll, I'll probably watch it soon. Um, so again, uh, check the show notes for that. You can find the show notes, by the way, at anthologypod.com slash zero six six or in the notes feature of your, um, podcast app that you're listening to this in. So, um, Harold Stone also appeared in Spartacus, and he was also in Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man back in 1956, and he also made several appearances on Hitchcock's shows, uh, Alfred, Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. I don't know why I'm so tongue-tied today. Jesus. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Harold Stone appeared in The Chapman Report in 1962, a movie role that he uh, got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor for. So that's interesting. Uh, co-starring in this episode as Paul Malloy is Fred Wayne. This is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He was previously in the episode 22 uh, as Barney. And uh, also, it was interesting, in that same year, in 1961, he was in a movie called 20 Plus 2, which I thought was mildly interesting. Um, and he was also in the Serling scripted movie Seven Days in May, which, if all if all goes as planned, I'm recording this G- July 3rd, just a peek behind the curtain, but if all goes as planned, me and Tiny have talked about Seven Days in May in, the, uh, pre- in a previous episode of Anthology, so check that out. And uh, finally... Or not finally, but also Fred Wayne appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1960 called Vanishing Point. And as far as him as a as an actor and a person and everything, he's known for his portrayal and knowledge of Ben Franklin. Like if you go on his IMDb page, his um his main picture on IMDb is him in Ben Franklin makeup and everything, which is interesting because he does not like he looks just like Ben Franklin under the makeup and everything and presumably aged up because I feel like that picture was probably taken much later than 1961. But um, he, I mean, he's like a dead ringer for Ben Franklin. And it's weird because like watching him in either of his Twilight Zone episodes, like I would not have picked him apart as a Ben Franklin lookalike or anything. So I thought that was mildly interesting. Um, as Bangston in this episode is Noah Keen. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. We will next see him in the late season three episode, The Trade-Ins. And he was also in, um, an hour-long story written by Rod Serling for the Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater called Exit from a Plane in Flight. Um, that aired in January 20, uh, January of 1965, and I couldn't find it online. Uh, like, there's a small clip available on YouTube, but I can't find the entire thing, which is a shame. 
because I would like to check it out. Um, and then also he was in Battle for the Planet of the Apes in 1973. And finally, he appeared in an episode of The Next Step Step Beyond in 1978 called Woman in the Mirror. As Robbins in this episode is Robert Carnes. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and he would later in 1971 appear in an episode of Night Gallery in the segment Midnight Never Ends. And rounding out the cast of The Arrival is Bing Russell as George Cousins. This is his first of two Twilight Zones. He will next appear in Season 5, the episode Ring-A-Ding Girl. And he was known for his roles in The Magnificent Seven and Tango and Cash and Dick Tracy. And uh, on the uh, kind of science fiction uh, side of things, he appeared in one episode of science fiction theater called Survival in Box Canyon in 1956. So writer for this episode was Rod Serling and director was Boris Sagal. Um, this is his second of two Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, he previously directed one of my favorite episodes from, from season two, The Silence. And a piece of trivia that I don't think I caught on when I reviewed The Silence was that he is, he was the father of Katie Sagal, uh, from Married with Children, Sons of Anarchy, Futurama. Um, that was pretty interesting to find out. And he also co-directed an episode, the pilot episode, uh, rather, of Night Gallery. He directed the segment The Cemetery. Um, he also directed one episode of Way Out, the Roald Dahl uh, short-lived anthology show from 1961 called Death Wish. And yeah, so that is the talent rundown for The Arrival. So now before I get to my full review of the episode, I'm going to kind of briefly talk about what I knew before the episode, but what I knew going into it since I, this was my first time watching the episode. Um, I knew that it was about a plane that lands but has zero passengers on board. And honestly, I was very excited about it. Um, I think I caught wind of this episode um, around the time that I reviewed The Odyssey of Flight 33. Um, and that was an episode that I really, really enjoyed. And it also just happened to be around the time that the first season of the CBS All Access uh, Twilight Zone show was premiering. And when I saw Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, the podcast in that episode makes a reference to the Odyssey of Flight 33 and uh, 22 and then also this episode of The Twilight Zone. So I kind of caught wind of what it was about, what this episode was about, just from going through different podcasts that were reviewing season one and everything. And so I kind of caught the idea that this episode was about a plane that lands with zero passengers on board. So that made me very intrigued and very interested in it. And the idea also made me think of Lost, uh, which was one of my favorite shows of all time. And I, so all of those things together really made me anxious to see this episode and really excited to watch it um, uh, and very excited to see what happens in it. So those were my thoughts going into the episode. So let me go ahead and go into my review of The Arrival. Okay, so right off the bat, the opening shot of the episode is the airplane in the hangar with guards kind of standing in formation around it. Um, and it looks it like it's it is extraordinarily reminiscent of the opening shot of uh, the season one episode and when the sky was opened. Like that episode starts with uh, a shot in a in a hangar of the X whatever the the plane was called um, or the spaceship I think, but the uh, the X 21 or something like that. Um, but anyway, it was, it was like that same angle, I think, and that same kind of vantage point. Um, it just looked very similar to that. So 
I found that interesting as I was kind of rewatching this episode over and over again in preparation for this episode of the podcast because I feel like obviously unintentionally uh, this was an indicator of where the episode was going to end up in a sense. So the opening shot of this episode mimics the opening shot of a season one episode. And then when you kind of um, pull back and look at the arrival overall as an episode of, of the Twilight Zone, you kind of realize that this episode as a whole, at least you may realize that this is what my kind of take on it was that this episode as a whole, or at least the resolution of it is just kind of a bit too much of a retread of past episodes. Like in particular, it kind of recycles um, some of the plot elements of King nine will not return. And even a little bit of, and when the sky was opened and that leaves to leaves kind of a, a sour taste in my mouth personally. So I'll go into more detail as I go on into the review, but I just thought that was an interesting kind of visual indicator for this episode, or a coincidental indicator, I should say, because like this episode is mimicking a shot from the first season, and it is also uh, kind of retreading some of the some of the plot situations of uh, previous episodes. So I thought that was interesting. But right off the bat, we get Rod Serling's opening narration. And as I usually do, I'm going to go ahead and play that clip here. So here's Rod Serling's opening narration for The Arrival. This object, should any of you have lived underground for the better parts of your lives and never had occasion to look toward the sky, is an airplane. Its official designation, a DC-3. We offer this rather obvious comment because this particular airplane, the one you're looking at, is a freak. Now, most airplanes take off and land as per schedule. On rare occasions, they crash. But all airplanes can be counted on doing one or the other. Now, yesterday morning, this particular airplane ceased to be just a commercial carrier. As of its arrival, it became an enigma. A seven-ton puzzle made out of aluminum, steel, wire, and a few thousand other component parts, none of which add up to the right thing. In just a moment, we're going to show you the tail end of its history. We're going to give you 90% of the jigsaw pieces, and you and Mr. Sheckley here of the Federal Aviation Agency will assume the problem of putting them together, along with finding the missing pieces. This we offer as an evening's hobby, a little extracurricular diversion, which is really the national pastime in the twilight zone. So, I thought I thought that this opening narration was an effective tease for the episode. It doesn't give any real details or anything, but the thing that I found really interesting was that we were being introduced to the DC3 uh after the mystery has established itself. Like obviously we go back uh after the narration and everything, we go back and we see um we we see the mystery as it starts out. But I thought it was interesting that this kind of opening narration is from the vantage point of after the fact, after the mystery has, has begun, essentially. Now, as you might have guessed from what I've said so far, um, this episode of The Twilight Zone didn't hit with me as much as I was expecting it to or wanting it to. So I'm, I'm, I won't say that it's a bad episode. It's really not. I actually grew to enjoy it quite a bit, which I'll, I'll kind of, uh, talk through my feelings on it as I go through this review. But I will say that this opening narration just really brings us into um, the story and the mystery really well, despite my feelings on the episode as a whole. So in particular, uh, Rod Serling's comparison to the plane and, and the situation being a puzzle is a good way to set us up for the kind of 
logic-based focus of the mystery. Um, so a lot of this episode is about Sheckley putting together the pieces of this mystery, and it's very much grounded, no pun intended, in reality and in logic. And I really, really love that type of storytelling, and I love that aspect of this episode, even if it didn't really land, the no pun intended also, um, the way that I wanted it to. And also in the opening narration, I like the way that Serling refers to the plane as a freak. Um, just that phrasing, I, I, that stood out to me in such a big way, and, and I love it for it. So he's anthropomorphizing this lifeless object, and it casts a unique light on the episode, in my opinion. Um, again, I like as I am usually, like as I want to do on this podcast, I might be reading into something that's not there, but him anthropomorphizing the plane casts a unique light on the episode for me. So the fact that it arrived with no crew or passengers isn't like, like here's my theory. So by anthropomorphizing the plane, I'm going to try to say the word anthropomorphize, <laughs> anthropomorphizing as many times as I can, but by making it, by calling it a freak as if it were a, uh, something that is imbued with life. Um, in a derogatory way also. Um, my theory is that, or the way that I read it, is that the fact that it arrived with no crew or passengers isn't what makes the Twilight Zone the Twilight Zone in this episode. Like, the fact that it arrived with no crew or passengers isn't the Twilight Zone element of the story. Instead, the plane itself is this Twilight Zone element. Like, maybe the fact that the plane exists at all is the supernatural entity of the twilight zone. Not the fact that it, that the human beings on board disappeared before it landed, but the fact that the plane exists itself. You can also read that as a clue to the end of the episode. Also, um, if you really, really dig deep into it and, and try to look for something that's probably not there, uh, much like Sheckley does in this episode. Um, uh, it also, but, but also the fact that he calls it a freak, um, it also helps set the stage for, uh, the titular arrival of the plane. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but there's the fact that there's no one on board when it lands really gives us the sensation that this object has taken on uh, on a life of its own. Like when they open up the door and go in and we see that there's no one on the plane, it retroactively freaks us out a little bit, or at least it did to me, that the fact that this plane is a ghost ship that just landed at an airport by itself, is that is a very eerie thing, a very eerie Twilight Zone thing to happen. And honestly, the, all of this is to say that... It's, it's partly to blame for why I feel that the reveal that all of this is Sheckley losing his mind, um, that's the reason why this is so unsatisfying for me. Um, because up until this point, like in the opening minutes of this episode, the episode is subtly setting us up for a supernatural object rather than a supernatural situation. But it doesn't deliver on that at all. And that's, that's kind of a downer for me. That's, that's, just, uh, that's just a shame. So, okay, I'll get more into that later. Um, after the opening narration, we get the title card, um, which, by the way, just brief aside, I'm two episodes into season three. I am loving the title cards or title screens of the episodes. Like, I, <laughs> like we're two seasons into the Twilight Zone, and, I, like, I am, it's a lot, it's a lot like, 
going from season one to season two and transitioning from just voiceover narration to seeing Rod Serling on screen. Um, now we're transitioning to seeing the name of the title and the credits in the opening opening of the episode and just I love it. I don't something about it just looks just so right. Maybe it's because I've spent so much time watching uh the the CBS All Access series which also does that obviously that I just felt like maybe something was missing from the original series. But I'm just loving it. And this one in particular it's from uh it's shot from an air traffic control tower. And I just adored this. Like it is a very it's a static shot for the most part. And it's just, it's just looking out into, into just nothing, a runway. And there's a sound of a plane engine approaching and it just really does the trick to bring us into this setting, into this world. Like we're in a world where a plane exists, um, I guess. Um, and I made this note and it's, so I kind of felt like it, it feels like something out of maybe like a Sydney Lumet movie. And I can't really corroborate that really, um, because I feel like his movies like 12 Angry Men and Failsafe have like those kinds of static shots of something. I could be wrong in misremembering it, uh, misremembering both of those movies, but it just feels like something that like a, like a, a Sidney Lumet would do. Um, just kind of letting us breathe and letting us just be enveloped in this world, uh, that is, uh, where we're going to be transported into. It's just this normal world. And that's another thing that really stood out to me is that it shows the normalcy and the routine of air travel from the perspective of the people who work in the airport. So we're here in the, um, in the uh, air traffic control tower. And then we're on the runway by the hangar, by the gate. And we're seeing, uh, one of the guys, I can't remember which one it was. Um, maybe cousins. Um, uh, I think it was Cousins or Robbins. Uh, but we see them kind of, you know, taxiing the, um, or, or directing the plane as it's landing. We see him grab the, the little blocks to put by the wheels and everything. It's just very, um, natural and very normal. And, uh, what, what I love about this is that this is showing this routine, but the fact that we, uh, <laughs> the fact that this is juxtaposed by Rod Serling's opening narration, beforehand um just makes it so much more ominous and uneasy to us because we know that we're in the twilight zone we know we know we're watching the twilight zone yet we have this just completely kind of perfunctory shot or scene of this plane landing and then being directed into the uh, to the gate and by the hangar and we're seeing just these people just doing their jobs but we've also heard Rod Serling tell us that this plane is a freak and it's weird and something is, something is amiss and everything. So it just makes this just so, I don't know. It just sets up the atmosphere of the episode so well. And then also just the fact that it's, like I said, it's literally just the arrival of the DC three, but there's no score. There's no music played. It's only the sound of the plane. And I think that that goes such a long way to set up the atmosphere and the tone of the episode. And it's something that I really appreciated about the filmmaking in this episode. So in addition to all the routine and normalcy that's shown here is this lingering shot of the propeller blade as it's spinning as the plane pulls up. Um, I thought this was a phenomenal piece of visual foreshadowing um, because the camera just lingers just long enough to implant the idea of how dangerous it is. And it makes the climax of the episode all the more intense and, and nerve wracking, um, which I, I just thought was a really nice, subtle kind of piece of foreshadowing for the episode. 
So after the plane has landed, we discover that no one's in the plane. And um, first, we're first we're the first indication of this is that the luggage is gone. There's no luggage or anything. And I like how the missing luggage factors into the theory about parachutes later. But I'll get to that in a bit. But the thing that really um, <laughs> surprised me was that I went into this episode thinking that just the passengers were missing. I had no idea that the entire crew and and the pilots were gone too. Um, And I thought that that was really interesting. It really threw me for a loop because I really thought that the crew was still going to be on the plane. Um, And the surprise that they were gone too and that this was a literal like ghost ship um, in plane form just really invested me into the story. Um, Had the crew been there, it would have changed the episode entirely, of of course, but the kind of ghost ship nature of the plane and the focus on finding the answer through logic really made the mystery very, very engaging to me. And I think that's part of why uh, the ending was so unsatisfying. So uh, the two guys, they're, they're like kind of troubleshooting the thing um and when george reveals that no one is on the plane there's this really cool technique used so when they go into the plane the scene changes to a handheld camera shot and we get inside the cabin of the plane and we're handheld we're we're in the handheld camera mode and walking toward the cockpit and i thought this was such a great filmmaking decision because we're with them as they're discovering the mystery And up until this point, we don't know what the mystery is. Like, this is completely fresh to us, and we're discovering it along with them. So, in this handheld shot, our destination is the cockpit. And we can already tell that there's not going to be anyone in it. Like, there's a little, like, we see just a little bit of of space in the cockpit. Um, So, we know that no one's going to be in there. But we're still moving toward it and it's in this handheld shot. So it's so immersive and everything. So knowing that no one's there and then seeing that no one is there is carries this big weight, uh, for the viewer. And I thought that was just really good immersion and really good filmmaking. It really made me think of, um, the switch to handheld that Stanley Kubrick did years later in 2001, a space odyssey when they're walking down the ramp on the moon in, uh, the moon to see the monolith that's been, uh, excavated on the moon. Um, it's the same exact technique. Um, I don't know. I am I'm, I'm sure that it's like, it's a, a standard filmmaking technique, I'm sure of the time, but, um, it's just cool to see it in the twilight zone and then uh i think seven years later in 2001 2001 of course is one of my favorite movies of course like you guys would know that um i'm sure i've said it before but 2001 a space odyssey is one of my favorite movies so um it was cool to see this technique again so uh we've got the mystery this plane has landed no one's on board there's no one there so we got to bring in the faa so sheckley is the guy from the faa uh and Something so Harold Stone, I, I really like his performance, and I couldn't really put my finger on why I was so captivated by his performance until like the fourth or fifth time that I watched this episode. Um, because and maybe this isn't fair to him, but um, I felt like he has just this very Martin Belsom quality about him. Um, he's just very uh. I don't know. He's just got that kind of quality to him. So maybe I'm just, cause I'm a big fan of Martin Balsam and maybe I'm just kind of transposing my fandom of him onto Harold Stone's performance. I don't know. Maybe they're both the same just caliber of actor. I don't know, but he just kind of has this 
this um this kind of not bravado but like this energy to him that he's just like uh he's kind of like a detective <laughs> uh he's just like just the facts like uh, just the facts ma'am um but he is just the way he carries himself is this like okay well i've i'm i'm going to set out to solve this mystery and it's just this glamorless way about it like it's just very not selfless but it's very modest like okay we're here to unearth as many facts as we can is something that he says and he's just like don't don't muddle it with theories or anything that's my job i'm going to just i just want just facts i'm going to figure out what this is i've been at this job for like 20 years and i've never been licked um and i i just like that about him it's just straight to the point it's very much just just cut to the chase and again this makes for a strong grounded story in the face of a supernatural event and that is the kind of storytelling that i love that storytelling that challenges challenges our own suspension of disbelief by creating a scenario in which the characters do not have that suspension of disbelief. Um, I think that that's, it's very compelling. It's very clever storytelling. It is storytelling that's not easy to accomplish because by making this, by making the characters not accept the supernatural reality of it and, and look into it in a logical viewpoint, that is creating a scenario in which the show's job is to create a more airtight uh, supernatural situation than would otherwise be done. Like we don't have, this doesn't give the story the leeway to do just crazy stuff for the sake of entertainment. Like it is creating a scenario in which the characters themselves are the audience conduits and are trying to problem solve. And that leaves it way open for other like plot holes and inconsistencies. So that results in something that needs that the story needs extra care to protect itself, to keep the audience engaged. And I don't know. I just, I, I love it for that. I love this type of storytelling. It's kind of the same to an extent, um, kind of the same type of thing in uh, the Odyssey of Flight 33, which honestly I think is a far superior episode than the Arrival, but it is something that shares a lot of the same tone and, and uh, situational uh, um, elements, I guess. So up until this point, I'm very involved in this mystery. I thought it was very effective up to this point. And so Sheckley does his whole thing. Like I said, he does the theories happen to be my business. And I've never, I've never not cracked a puzzle. Um, so he, he starts asking, uh, asking the people involved. Like he's gathering information like a detective. And he asks, uh, the dispatch guy from Buffalo whether or not he saw the pilots board the plane. And this is another extension of that kind of routine and normalcy thing that we saw in the first, uh, the first, uh, uh scene. Because I like that the dispatch guy doesn't have an answer. Um, again, I like I've been saying, it's a grounded story aside from the supernatural mystery. And we've already seen the, the routine and the everyday operations, so it makes perfect sense that this guy wouldn't remember actually seeing them board the plane, because why would he? It's just his everyday thing. There's no, there's no situation in which they weren't going to be on the plane when it landed. Um, so there's no way for him to just mentally clock that they, that they boarded the plane. It's just an everyday thing. Um, and here's where we get our first clue 
as to the ending. Sheckley says that the names of the pilot and the co-pilot are very familiar to him. And at that point, I hadn't figured out yet what that was going to lead to. So I just thought, okay, that's an interesting thread. Um, but I didn't know what it could mean. And I had no theories at that point. And so after that, Checkley kind of reinforces his whole like, oh, I've never been licked thing. Um, uh, I've got 22 years in this job and I've never been licked. And then Malloy, uh, the PR guy says, uh, he goes into this, he goes into this thing that's like, there's no way that it could have, that this could have happened. Um, in the way that he says it simply is not within the realm of possibility, I don't know, something about his energy and the delivery of that is, is really strong. Like it's kind of indicative of, he does it with the, this forcefulness that's like, yeah, obviously, yeah, like this is within, this is not within the realm of possibility, it, yet it happened, which is what, um, Sheckley says to him, like, yes, that's true, but it happened, and I'm here to figure it out. And then I think Bankston says that there has to be an explanation. And so that's our scene in the kind of operations office of the airport. And then we transition to the actual hangar where the plane is, and we see this, just parked, um, haunted specter of a plane. Um, and the guys are kind of theorizing about it. And one of the theories that I think, um, I think cousins says is, uh, he's like, well, it's, it's simple. They, everyone on board just jumped out with parachutes. They were hiding the parachutes in the luggage compartment and they jumped out before it landed. And then I think Malloy, (laughs) I really love this line. I think it's Malloy. He says, what about the pilots, Mr. Holmes? Or is that elementary? I, I just love that. Uh, I thought it was cool. A cool Sherlock Holmes, uh, reference and kind of goading him. Um, I like how agitated everyone is here. Like we get the sense that they're very frazzled. They're very kind of at their wits end. They can't figure out what's going on. And I think one of the guys response to that is like, well, maybe the pilots hid in the bathroom. And then when we came in, they left, uh, or they left when I went to go make the phone call and everything. And they're like, well, no, that's not true. They're like, that's silly or whatever. Like these theories are kind of, they're a little illogical, but they also kind of make a little bit of sense. And it's kind of weird that they're just being kind of just written off so simply. Um, but I mean, whatever. So the, uh, I think, I, th- I think that that guy's cousins, I think. So George says, uh, he's talks about how he's having, how he's uneasy around the plane. And I love that idea that the plane has, is turning into this haunted specter for the people investigating it. Um, I thought that was a really fun thread that ultimately the idea of it wasn't explored. Like it doesn't go any further than that, but I like that the dialogue kind of alludes to it. And that's something that I could kind of, um, put into it, um, even though it wasn't really explored. Um, and then, so as they're arguing, I, I gotta, uh, admit that Bankston flubbed a line. Um, the actor, what was his name again? Uh, he flubs a line. It's a Noah Keen. He flubs a line and he says something like, um, well, you know what? Instead of me trying to figure it out, here's a clip from it. We have been theorizing now for six solid hours. I'm just a simple-minded vice president in charge of operations. So yeah, so he flubbed that line there, and I thought that that was interesting. That that's apparently that's the best take that they had. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But regardless of that, it didn't it didn't like if anything, it kind of brought more of a naturalistic uh, way of talking to it. I guess I don't or talking into the episode. I don't know. But more importantly, to kind of move past that small error, 
we discover that this is that they've been at this for six hours. This is six hour, hours after the arrival. And what I thought was what something that just really intrigued me even further was the reveal that no relatives or loved ones have called to inquire about the passengers at all. Like they have news media and everything that's trying to contact them and trying to figure out what's going on, like what the big deal is. And they're kind of deflecting them, but no one has actually called to inquire about the relatives. And I thought that that was so interesting and so intriguing. And it was such an, an effective way to move the mystery even, even farther forward. Um, it's free of dra- uh, dramatization. It's steeped in the logical problem solving of the episode rather than having this big, like, act break. Like this, the, in another episode, this could have been like a, this could have been like a an act break, like, oh, well, we've got an even bigger problem because no one has called about the passengers and it's been six hours. What's going on? Act break. But instead, this is just more of a matter of fact thing. Like no one has inquired about it. No one has talked about uh, no one has has contacted us about it. And we're trying to figure out like that's an, that's an even an, that's an additional piece to the mystery. And so this kind of intriguing, like logical problem solving thing is, is what made me really love the Odyssey of Flight 33. And it, it's what made it so appealing to me. Um, and again, this episode is not as good as Odyssey, but I like the similar tones that they strike. This is an interesting companion to the Odyssey of Flight 33, in my opinion. So as they're talking and they're kind of getting um, a little bit exasperated about it, Sheckley says again that the names on the manifest are familiar too. Like he says like the names on the passenger manifest are familiar. And here is where I pegged the ending. So I think this is like 10 minutes into the episode, almost halfway through the episode. And I put in my notes, I wonder if this will take a King nine will not return turn and be about Sheckley dealing with a past trauma. Um, and Honestly, it's kind of a bummer that I that I figured it out so soon. Like I kind of I was really hoping that that wasn't the case cuz I wanted I wanted the episode to kind of just surprise me. Um yeah, I just I just thought that that was kind of a bummer. But uh yeah. So going back to where Bankston says that no relatives or anything has call, have called about it. Um called about the passengers. Again, I just love how it doubles and then triples down on the bizarreness of the situation because Bankston says that and then he tries to write it off as not weird, but then he immediately relents and he's like, yeah, it's, that's, that's weird. What am I saying? This is, this is a weird situation. Um, so yeah, so I just, I kind of like how the episode, uh, doubles down on the mystery there. And so something that I think it's George, I got, I get him and the other, uh, the other airport guy confused. But anyway, when he mentions that, uh, it's just a sea of brown seats when he went into the plane, that's when Sheckley kind of perks up a little bit. And that's where we get this reveal that every one of them is seeing a different color for the seats. Um, and I thought it was funny that Malloy just writes it off as nonsense. It's like, okay, that's, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a break in the case. Um, but regardless, this revelation that the seats that they're they're all seeing different colors for the seats, I was just super into this. Like the different color seats and then the different tail numbers had me like on the edge of my seat. I was I because I had no idea where this episode was ending was going to end up or how the episode was going to reconcile this mystery. I had a theory about like what the big deal was with with Sheckley and his past, but I didn't know the actual mechanics of 
the ghost plane. And I was just really invested in this moment, in this, in this revelation that, okay, they're seeing different things. And like, I, I was working under the assumption that I don't know why, like, I'm not sure why this thought crossed my mind, but I was just kind of working under the assumption that, um, that this was going to be resolved in some non-supernatural way. Um, so I had, like, I had no idea how they were going to resolve it because for some reason I was so focused on the, uh, methodology and the, um, procedure of it all that I was under the assumption that they were going to find a way to explain it in a normal situation without any supernatural entities or anything. And I think the credit to that goes to a, my ignorance. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I think it's pretty much pretty obvious. Like that was a stupid thing to think <laughs> throughout the episode, but also I think that it's because the tone of the episode was done so well, like this, um, this whole, logic-based problem-solving thing like these people that are just trying to figure out the the way that it's solved without acknowledging necessarily the supernatural element of it really just just drew me into the story and drew me into what they were doing um and i think that that's why i had that thought i thought that it was going to lead down that way uh down to an, a more normal um explanation and i really was invested in that i i really did was um, so after the, re- the revelation that they're all seeing the different, uh, n- numbers and seats and everything, Sheckley has a theory and he mentions, uh, like he asks if they, if they're aware of mass suggestion and, uh, he says, I don't think this airplane is really here. And he goes on to say that we've all been hypnotized in some way. Someone has put this idea in our head. So we knew that the that a DC-3 landed at this airport this morning. We know that no one was on board. So when we see this plane, we're all seeing our version of the DC-3. So our version of the DC-3 has different call numbers on, on, the, on the tail of the plane. They have different color seats because that's how our brain is interpreting it. And I thought that that was just fascinating. I loved that element of it. And I love how he's like, like, this particular aircraft doesn't exist. And he kind of pounds on the side of it, which I thought was interesting because it's like, he's, it's so anachronistic. He's saying, like, this particular aircraft doesn't exist, yet he is hitting the side of it in showing that it has, like, a, um, a physical presence in the space. Like, his hand is making noise as he's tapping it and everything. Um, and then he says he's going to set out to prove it. He says, I'm going to prove that you're wrong or I'm going to prove that I'm wrong. And if I happen to be wrong, I also happen to be dead. And man, this was such a cool element of this episode. So first of all, again, going back to my ignorance, <laughs> I thought when he said, if I happen to be wrong, I also happen to be dead. Like in the in that brief moment before he reveals like what his plan is. I thought he was being literal. Like I thought that um I thought that he was saying that he's actually dead and this is purgatory because I just was a little bit slow on the uh uptake on that. So he tells the guys to uh roll out the plane and start the engines. And that's when like for a second I thought he's going to try to take off and prove that it isn't real. And in the process it could kill him somehow. Like for the briefest moment I thought that he was going to fly the plane. <laughs> And realize that it wasn't real and that it was going to be a shot like like a Looney Tunes cartoon where the plane disappears in the air and he just falls to the ground. I don't like that's just where my mind went. 
But where the actual episode went was so, so much more uh, climactic and terrifying, honestly. Like I have in my notes, oh my god, he's going to stick his hand in the propeller. Holy crap. Um, I love it. So like he is slowly going to walk toward the propeller with his arm extended. And this is such an amazing moment in this episode. Because he is just so full of, like, conviction. He is so sure. He has the confidence that he's right. Um, and it's an extension of the fact that he's always right. He's never been, he's never been someone who has lost a case. He's never, he's never let a case best him. And I really thought that this was going to turn out to be this ego-driven thing. That, like, he can't, in some, to an extent it is, but I'll talk about that in a second. But, um, he's so just, he's so adamant that he can't be wrong that he is he's willing to put his life in danger to prove that he's right and i thought that this was going to be like a cautionary tale like i don't i don't think i really thought that he was going to die but i literally had no idea what was going to happen because again i thought that this was going to be resolved in a non-supernatural way and also just to go back a little bit when he says that about uh his plan he says if i'm wrong please notify my wife like, like I, I don't know. Something about that is just uh, kind of funny to me. Um, and so, like, I have, like, in my notes, I just, <laughs> my notes are crazy. I have no idea what is going to happen. Oh, my God, I can't watch. The music cue is great. And, like, literally, I could not watch. Like, I turned my eyes away from it. Um, and I was just, I was just so nervous and so scared about what was going to happen. And all credit goes to just the filmmaking of this episode. Like I think subconsciously I saw the propeller at the beginning of the episode that the, that the camera lingered on and everything. And the tone of the episode is being so grounded in reality and logic based and everything made me think like, how is this going to resolve itself? I have no idea what's going to happen. And just the fact that this man who is so like focused on figuring out the problem and figuring out what happened in a logical way and finding an answer to this clearly supernatural, um, otherworldly thing, actually putting his life in the lines of his, of his own theory is just so just batshit crazy to me. <laughs> like I was so invested in this moment. And then as he's moving toward it, it's, I think the camera kind of pans out or, or cuts back to a farther back angle so we can see the full plane and as he gets close to the propeller it just disappears and what i loved about this is that um the uh the editing is really really good here like the, this scene is really fascinating and really well done because his jacket is billowing by the by the wind of the uh propeller and then the second that it um that the plane disappears, his, uh, his jacket is still billowing and everything without the plane there. And like, it's not, it's not, obviously it's, it's not like perfectly cut or anything, but it's just, that's, that added detail is really cool. I, I really like that about that. Um, and so, yeah, this is where it disappears. And then not only that, but everyone around him starts disappearing. So now we're just coming up on the end of the episode and there's a little bit of exposition that needs to be done. Um, in the last couple of scenes. So Sheckley is wandering around and he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's looking for Bankston and Malloy and he goes back to the operations office where he sees Bankston sitting at his desk and Malloy's on the couch reading a newspaper. And, uh, so <laughs> this is where the episode just kind of just 
doesn't fall apart entirely for me, but it just doesn't satisfy me. It it doesn't hit it doesn't hit as hard as um, I would have liked it to. So he's talking to Bankston um, under the assumption that that he knows what's going on and everything. And Bankston's like, uh, "Dude, I don't know what's going on. Hey, you're that guy from the FAA. What's up?" Um, and so, so I don't know why I enjoyed this so much. I really don't. But, uh, Sheckley says, and I'm going to try to do an imitation of it and it's going to be terrible, but I've been, tr- I've been practicing it in my apartment for the last week or so. Um, he says, what kind of gag is this? I can't, I can't do the inflection, but I don't know something about something about the weird, like sixties tough guy tone that he takes is just really satisfying to me. Um, I think, I think it's mostly just because this, like what kind of gag is this is just so steeped in like sixties dialogue and movies and TV. Like people don't talk like that anymore. Um, these days. And I just, I, I love it as a relic of a, of a bygone era, I think. So I don't know. So at this point it's revealed like, Hey, I was right. And I wasn't sure how to feel about it. So Sheckley finds out that he investigated a a disappearance of a DC-3 uh, Flight 107 from Buffalo, uh, the same circumstances and everything. Um, he finds out that he investigated that 17 or 18 years ago and was in, unable to find uh, reach a conclusion about it. So this whole thing has been kind of conjured from his mind. Um, and... On one hand, I like that this situation is Sheckley's mind creating a mystery specifically so he can solve it. Like, my read of it is that this is a comfort for him. It's a defense mechanism. Sheckley's mind is trying to cope with his failure 17 or 18 years ago by creating a situation where he can solve the problem and he does solve the problem. Like, that on the surface, it's profound in a way. Um, and it's, it's something that is, is, uh, interesting in the way that the show, uh, depicts this kind of mental anguish of its characters. Like, this is stuff that has happened in episodes previous to this. Like, just a character's mind, uh, creating an environment for the character to cope with something in their past is something that has happened in the Twilight Zone before. Um, but here it just doesn't, I don't know, something about it just doesn't quite land with me. Um, and I think it's because it's been done before in, in this series, uh, itself. Like the one I keep going back to is King Nine Will Not Return. It's a similar type of concept. But the thing that kind of, um, sets that apart from this episode is that we have that element of, um, the sand in the shoe, I think. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that episode, but the sand at the end of the episode showing that, like, okay, well, he was really transported there. We don't really get anything like that in this. This is just a cruel kind of trick that the Twilight Zone plays on, on Sheckley because the end of it is he's, he's doomed. Like, he's just crazy. Like, he's, he's been driven mad by this, uh, by the, by not being able to bear the reality of, of his failure. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So uh, he sees Malloy reading the paper. The reason that he comes to, like he comes to realize what happened is that the newspaper talks about how this Hollywood starlet um, arrives on a transit east flight from Buffalo, uh, flight 107. And at first, I wasn't making the connection. <laughs> like I didn't know what was going on. Um, and then uh, it shows that the plane had landed this morning and that there was no incident. And 
Sheckley is so confused at this moment. Like he's he's confused, and Bankston and Malloy they don't really know him, which I thought was a nice touch because we we've spent the episode with them together trying to troubleshoot this problem. So then Sheckley is is trying to figure out what's going on. He he asks them like, okay, well, uh, what's what's going on and everything. And then that's when it's revealed that he's kind of having a nervous breakdown. So. Bankston's like, wait, yeah, you were that examiner on that plane that went missing some 20 odd years ago. Um, and I thought it was funny, the kind of back and forth, something about the actor playing Bankston, his, um, his performance here, this, his delivery of the lines where he repeats the lines in kind of a soothing way. He's like, um, flight 107 out of Buffalo. You flight 107 out of Buffalo. Um, it's just, it's not like condescending or anything. It's just this weird soothing way. Uh, it's like, he's, he's coming to, like, he's coming to the realization that, oh, this is, this guy is clearly unstable. Like he needs, he needs some medical help. And then that's, it just breaks Sheckley. This breaks him. He starts saying, I've always found the causes. I've always found the causes. I haven't been licked yet. And this is a broken man that leaves the operations room and it's a big shift for Sheckley because up until now he's been just this, not suave, but just like this very confident uh, detective type character who has tried to f- figure out the ending and figured out like the solution to the problem and everything. And then we end on Sheckley just shambling around yelling for flight 107 and it's heartbreaking and it doesn't it just doesn't connect with me. It's, it's a little too cruel, um, in a sense, because Sheckley just flat out loses. Um, this episode is about him losing his mind instead of being about redemption for him or about him realizing his shortcomings or anything like that or ego or, or narcissism or any, any of the classic Twilight Zone, um, kind of comeuppances and, and, uh, redemption arcs and everything. I think, Ultimately, that's why this episode just doesn't hit as hard as I would like it to. Like, it would be different if Sheckley's arc ended with him coming to terms with his failure and overcoming that trauma. Um, instead, he's just doomed into a life of madness because he can't bear his failures. And it doesn't really carry any message or deeper meaning behind it, in my opinion. Like, even Serling's closing narration is like, eh, yeah, this is what, like, he's going to be taken away. <laughs> um, and, he's, he's going to be taken away. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's sad and it just doesn't, it doesn't really connect with me at all. And I don't know. So up until that ending, up until the reveal at the end, I was very much just on board, no pun intended (laughs) with this episode. And I was very invested in it. And then that ending just kind of just didn't work for me. And I, that's a bummer, but Hey, it's, it's the twilight zone. So, I mean, that's, it is what it is. So here's Rod Sarling's closing narration for the arrival after having uh, Sheckley just kind of on a, on an empty runway screaming into the heavens. Picture of a man with an Achilles heel, a mystery that landed in his life and then turned into a heavy weight dragged across the years to ultimately take the form of an illusion. Now that's the clinical answer that they put on the tag as they take him away. But if you choose to think that the explanation has to do with an airborne flying Dutchman, a ghost ship in a fog-enshrouded night and a flight that never ends, then you're doing your business in an old stand in the Twilight Zone. 
so as with most of the closing narrations, I like the prose of it. I like the I like the wording and everything, but it still feels just a bit bland to me. Um, it's alluding to the DC three ghost plane as if it were real, like kind of the way the narration to Odyssey of Flight thirty three refers to its plane, saying like, oh, if you see a plane, it might be uh, Global Flight thirty three searching for home and everything, um, and it works there. Like in, in that case, that's really cool. Like. <laughs> Okay, this is gonna be, this is gonna sound lame, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I live near an airport, and when I'm driving and I see a plane, like I think of that of that closing narration to Odyssey of Flight 33, because I keep thinking like the end of Odyssey 33 is them going through like going through the time loop or going through the uh, um, I don't know the time gate, whatever you want to call it, um, trying to find home, and they're jumping in time and everything. So like I don't know, I just love that thought experiment that like. If you see, like, in that reality of that episode, anyone at any time could see that plane, even though it has a finite amount of fuel and will ultimately crash or, or, or land in some time that's not their own. Um, any time in the universe of the Twilight Zone within that specific mini universe of the, of that episode, any time a character in any timeline, <laughs> in any, from the beginning of time to the end of time, sees a plane, it could be that, and it could be instantaneous. So I don't know. I love that thought experiment. But anyway, to get back to the arrival, the reason why it doesn't really work for me that the narration refers to the DC-3 ghost plane as if it were real, it says... Um, but if you choose to think that the explanation has to do with an airborne flying Dutchman, a ghost ship on a ghost ship on a fog and shrouded night on a flight that never ends, then you're doing your business in an old stand in the twilight zone. It kind of alludes to the DC three ghost plane existing in real life. And the reason why that doesn't really work for me is that we know that the ghost plane here isn't real. Like it's a figment of Sheckley's imagine imagination and his, it's his coping mechanism. So there's no real reason to allude to an airborne flying Dutchman ghost ship because we know that it's just a figment of the character's imagination and doesn't really exist. So I don't know that just didn't really sit well with me. So overall, overall I, I like the episode. I like two thirds of the episode, but then in that ending, when it reveals the actual mystery and everything, um, it just kind of didn't really, uh, work for me as well as I, I would have liked it to. So as far as an overall episode, I thought that it was okay. It was above average, but ultimately kind of squandered some goodwill from the beginning at the end. So that's my review of the arrival. And now to kind of, before I get to my bonus review, I should say, I'm going to go into some trivia for this episode. So according to unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr., uh, this episode was reviewed by Variety in the September 27th, 1961 issue, and they kind of had some, uh, harsh words to say to it too, um, say about it as well. So their review included the quote, the show now seems to be feeding itself. In three seasons, it has created its own set of plot cliches, and writer Rod Serling, uh, now appears to be weaving them together in multiples with no profounder purpose in mind than to manufacture a provocative show. The outing was slick, pat, and extravagantly contrived, wholly unworthy of the proven talents of a dramatist like Serling. And, man, that's harsh. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I kind of came down on it the same way. Like, it is kind of, uh, it's an, it's indicative of the show kind of, I, I want to almost say resting on its laurels. Like, creating this scenario where the ending is, 
kind of an amalgam of, of a couple of different endings and kind of just recycling old things. Like I had mentioned, I didn't mention this in the review, but when, um, it evokes the ending of, and when the sky was open, because like when he, like when Sheckley is talking to Bankston about like trying to figure out like this really happened and he's exasperated and everything, just even the way that he talks, the dialogue and everything just reminded me of, and when the sky was open, when, um, I can't remember who it was, but the, the character is running around yelling for Harrington. Um, it kind of had that same type of thing. And it's just, I don't know, it was just kind of a bummer. So, uh, going on to more trivia, um, something that I found was that several years, despite the episode talking about how it's impossible for a plane to land itself, um, apparently in 1957, so a few years before this, um, in Missouri, a an Air Force uh, DC-3, same type of plane, ran out of fuel, and the the people on board all bailed out to safely, and the plane actually glided itself and emptied and landed on uh, a cornfield completely intact. So that was kind of interesting. Um, also, as I mentioned in my review, um, this uh, episode is one of several episodes that are referenced in the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot season one episode, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And I was also a standout episode of that um, season of uh, the Twilight Zone uh, 2019. So um, kind of a, a darker piece of trivia is that the director, Boris Sagal, it's somewhat uh, coincidental and tragic. He was actually, he, he passed away in 1981 while filming a TV film called World War Three um, in a helicopter accident in Oregon. So he... Uh, had just returned from filming aerial shots and after the helicopter landed, he inadvertently turned the wrong way after he got out of the helicopter and walked directly into the rear rotor blade of, of the, of the helicopter and that he died of, you know, um, that it killed him. An interesting piece of trivia also just kind of disturbing also is that, uh, filming resumed the very next day with a new director, which is nuts to me. Um, so that's a tragic kind of coincidental, um, situation that happened many years later. But also in addition to that, uh, Boris Sagal also worked with, um, he worked on it on, uh, an episode of the TV series Combat, which starred Vic Morrow, who, of course, Vic Morrow, uh, a while, a while later when filming the Twilight Zone movie passed away from, uh, a similar accident where he was, uh, struck by helicopter rotor blades. And that's my trivia for the arrival. Um, that is a very, very bleak, um, end to that review. So, um, yeah, that's all the trivia I have. And, uh, yeah, there's no real way to transition. So I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and uh, go into my bonus review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 12, Hour of Nightmare. Um, of course, Science Fiction Theater is out of print on DVD, but it is this episode is available on DailyMotion.com. I have a link in the show notes. So I'm going to go ahead and round out this episode with a uh, brief non-spoiler review of Hour of Nightmare. Hour of Nightmare originally aired on June 25th, 1955, and yeah, as I usually do with these uh, brief reviews, uh, the pre-show of this episode showed Truman Bradley demonstrating optical illusions. So he has a fan, and he says uh, he says something to the effect of, "Have you ever seen 
an object vanish in thin air in front of your eyes. And then he uses the fan as a, uh, as a demonstration to show that when the, when the blades are spinning, um, it gives the impression that they're not there because we see through the blades, which <laughs> I'm delighted when this kind of thing happens. Like this is an interesting parallel with the arrival because the arrival's climax is contingent on Sheckley's belief that the plane is an illusion. And it also goes so far as to have a propeller be the big kind of ending here. And just completely by happenstance, I am reviewing this episode of science fiction theater, which shows a similar uh, kind of optical illusion effect um, or uses an optical illusion as a demonstration, including a fan that has like like propeller blades like things. I don't know. Anyway, so Truman Bradley talks about how you he says something to the effect of, you may have read a few months ago about a UFO crash in Mexico. And I was kind of curious about that. Um, first, well, okay. So <laughs> I misheard him at first and thought he was talking about New Mexico and thought he was talking about Roswell, which is not the case because this was like eight years after Roswell. But I dig, I did a little digging and I believe he's referencing a, uh, an account of a UFO crash in, uh, near Del Rio, Texas. And I did some digging. I have a link in the show notes of this episode to roswellbooks.com. And basically, um, according to that website, I don't know how, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't find any more information about this except for a book that was written about it. But basically, this account is uh, retired Colonel Robert B. Willingham, 86, says he visited the site of a crashed unidentified flying object near Del Rio, Texas in 1955 and saw three non-human entities through a hole in the ruptured hull of the ship. The strange beings, two of which were badly mangled, appeared to have died in the crash. Um, and Willingham said, quote, it didn't look like humans to me. And let's see. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, and it's, it goes on to say the retired aviator said the beings he saw fit the common description of UFO occupants with large, uh, heads, slit like mouths and arms, quote, like broomsticks. And yeah, about roswellbooks.com, uh, part, uh, part of the website is, um, uh, of, it, it says, welcome to the virtual home of the Texas UFO Museum and Research Library, a clearinghouse for information about major UFO cases that have occurred in the state of Texas or that have strong ties to Texas. So check out that link if you're interested in it. There is a book about uh, this particular account um, from uh, uh, by this, this retired guy, uh, Willingham. Um, I think the book is called The Other Roswell. So... I don't know. Check that out. Um, if you're into it, I don't know. Okay. So this episode of science fiction theater, um, hour of nightmare, the synopsis is a husband and wife freelance photography team travels to Mexico to photograph mysterious flying objects in the night sky and stumble upon a dead alien. This episode was directed by Henry S. Kessler and written by Lou Houston. This episode stars William Bishop, Lynn Barry, Charles Evans and Christopher Dark. And so kind of my brief thoughts on this is that it was it was fine. It was okay. Um it's more science fiction based than other episodes. Um like it's not this it's it's not a a situation where they find something and then and then reverse engineer it to figure out what it is um in terms of science like trying to find a scientific explanation for it it's just all out like okay yes uh we found an alien body and everything <laughs> like this is real um it's shot in kind of uh i don't know i don't think it was death valley but it was like 
um, uh, kind of a, a I don't even know if it was really a desert even. Um, kind of a, I don't know. I, I like the location. Oh, wide open spaces. Um, um, I don't know if they shot it in Mexico. I doubt that they did, but it's, you know, shot for Mexico. Um, and I, I liked it. Um, there were, and there were a lot of surprisingly good visual effects and special effects. Um, especially for the time, like 1955. Like they kind of went all out. Um, there's, there are scenes involving, um, UFOs and lights and everything and first contact essentially. So, uh, we see the optical illusion or the visuals of lights in the sky and saucers and stuff. And it was really cool. Like, um, the way that it's shown, it's, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it's stock footage, but it's like separate from it. It's not in the same scene as the actors and everything, but it's like composited and everything on the, on the, uh, on, on shots of just the background. Um, so it's composited onto that. And there's a lot of good, like complimentary sound effects and music. Like they kind of go all out with it. And there's one scene in particular where they have, um, this guide that they find that is going to help them and everything who he has a secret tie to the events that are happening in this village. So, um, I won't give that away, but it's, it's an interesting kind of, um, tie to it. And he has an interesting arc. Um, his character is, is Ramon. It's played by Christopher dark, I think. Um, but anyway, so there's a scene where he is in kind of danger and it's nighttime and there's a lot of smoke and, and lighting effects because this is a very, um, intense moment. And I thought that was really cool. I thought it was really well done. Um, the kind of denouement of the episode is just, it kind of leaves the door open for the idea of extraterrestrial life and, and you, uh, UFOs actually visiting, which I thought was kind of cool and kind of ballsy of a 1955 science fiction show. Um, I don't know if I'd say ballsy really, but it was something that I, uh, I, I was kind of, I took pretty well. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty solid. So overall, this episode was okay. Um, science fiction theater, hour of nightmare, episode 12, season one, uh, available on dailymotion.com. Hopefully they, hopefully they re-release those DVDs or something. I'll keep a lookout for that. Um, or if they have them in stock or whatever, cause it's just a shame. I hate to think that the show, um, will die in the annals of, um, Non of, of, well, I don't know. Physical media is dying anyway, but I don't know. Maybe it'll stream somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's my review of Hour of Nightmare. And, uh, that's my episode 66 of Anthology. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to have a clip from the Patreon feed here to close out the episode in a, in a while. But, uh, next week on the show is episode 67 and I will be reviewing The Shelter, which is episode three of the Twilight Zone's third season. And my bonus review will be of 100 Years Young, Science Fiction Theater, Season 1, Episode 13. So, peek behind the curtain, I have not watched The Shelter yet, um, and I am very excited for it. Like, this is one of those episodes that I'm super excited to get to in my watching, specifically because it was... uh, referenced in the Simpsons in the episode Bart's, Bart's Comet. So I'm really excited for it. Um, yeah, so join me next week for The Shelter and 100 Years Young. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh, listening, and I'll see you later. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. 
Thank you and enjoy. This is a show. Okay. This is a show about high school kids that are dealing with like severely traumatic experiences and secrets and murder and stuff like that. It's very high drama. It's not, it's the intention of it, I believe, is that it's not like your traditional high school drama show because it is dealing with very serious topics and very serious uh, situations and everything. Yet, that's how it has been for the last like three seasons. Yet this episode that I just watched, the main focus of the entire episode was that they were, that the, the high school kids were figuring out how to have a house party that where their parents could not track where they were. And that was the extent of the drama of the episode. I mean, there was other dramatic things in it, but like, I was just like, holy crap, how, how far has this show fallen from <laughs> the story about a girl who, uh, committed suicide and left, uh, tapes for, um, everyone in her life that failed her? Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at Facebook.com slash As Good As It Gets Band. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! You're Sheckley, aren't you? Aren't you Sheckley of the FAA? What kind of a gag is this? Who do you think I am?